TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with the design writer Alexandra Lang and the legendary Jane Thompson about the store that brought modernism into the American home. So there was really the kind of high-low, craft-high design. People went in there and sat down and got comfortable, and they liked it. That's how much they never left. Here's Debbie Millman. Design Research was the unlikely name of the pioneering home furnishing store that helped bring modern European design into the American household. Design Research is also the name of a new book about this store and its legacy. One of the book's authors is none other than Jane Thompson, the legendary designer, urban planner, and editor, who along with Design Research founder Benjamin Thompson created the store's unique and influential aesthetic. This is just one chapter in a career that recently led to Jane's winning the Cooper Hewitt Lifetime Achievement Award. Her co-author is Alexandra Lang, an architectural historian, journalist, and critic whose work appears often on the website Design Observer and in the New York Times and Metropolis Magazine. Welcome to Design Matters, Jane and Alexandra. Thank you. Hello. Hi. It's so wonderful to have you here. First, Jane, Alexandra, congratulations on such a spectacular book. Thank you. Thank you. It is selling so well. I had to go to great lengths to actually find a copy. Amazon is sold out, and apparently there's a waiting list at Barnes & Noble. We hope that's a temporary problem. Um, It is truly a magnificent book. Uh, The first thing I want to ask you about is the foreword. It is written by Rob Forbes, certainly a disciple of the design research aesthetic and the founder of the store Design Within Reach. Uh, The title of the foreword sets the tone for the entire book. It's titled, Who's Your Daddy? Why a title like that? Well, that was Rob's title, and I was arrested by it as well as, as well as you are. 
but it tells the story of how many people know or don't know about the origins of modernism, certainly about this particular store. And part of his, his article there explains that when he went to organize Design Within Reach, he polled people about what store they remembered or liked in the home furnishings field. And he uh, reports very nicely in the, in the piece that design research outpolled everything 50 to 1, and it was 25 years gone. So it, it did prove what we later discovered to be true, too, which was there was a lingering memory of this by those who had experienced it, even those who had experienced it with their parents as children. So there was a second generation and an oncoming third generation that were still all looking for what they had when they had DR. And Alexandra, how did you how did you meet Jane? How did you get involved in this wonderful, exciting, life-changing project? I was working on an article for Metropolis about the Elliot Noyce House in New Canaan, Connecticut, and efforts to preserve it. And I had called Jane because she was very involved with the preservation of the Walter Gropius House in Lincoln, Mass., and the opening of that to the public. And so I interviewed her all about, you know, modern house museums, blah, blah. And at the end of the conversation, I just kept thinking, this is, you know, someone who is a lot involved with design research. My mother shopped there. My grandmother shopped there. I'll kick myself if I don't say something at the end. So I just said very casually, my whole family loves design research. I grew up with Mary Mecco. Have you, you know, ever thought about doing something about it? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm talking about doing a book. And I said, well... If you ever need any help with that, please give me a call. Wow. So your initiative allowed you to ultimately end up <laughs> That was the best thing she ever said. <laughs> now, Design Research was a store unlike any other at the time. And as Rob acknowledges in his foreword, it was the most influential force in 20th century America in creating an awareness and an appreciation for modern design in the consumer world. And it really was a major influence to retail outlets like Prada, like Apple, like Target, Ikea, and Moss. How and why do you think it became so influential? Well, I don't think it set out to to shape the world. I think it set out to solve some problems that were very human and local. What kind of problems? The problems that emerged right after the war when my husband Ben Thompson and his partners were launching the Architects Collaborative. And this was the moment when the veterans were being discharged, getting married, coming home, forming families, and needing places to live. There was a huge housing crunch at that time. And the developers were dropping housings all over the meadows and uh, Lovettown and places of this sort. TAC itself was building smaller but modern houses, but for very good house clients. And they all got to this point of saying, now, what what do we put in it? It's the, the whole plan of the house, the sense of the house, the modernism, the outlook were different. They couldn't put mother's credenza and a big old chest from somewhere else in there. They needed new appropriate furnishings. And Ben cared very much about this. He cared as much about the interior of the house and the comfort of your life and the way it reflected you, by the way, not a decorator. He hated the decorator idea. <laughs> this is your environment. I will find you the best things available, and you will choose and put them together and make your own uh, living. Yeah, there was a line in the book that I love. This is your life, not your grandmother's. <laughs> that might have been yours but line, but it was Ben's too. Anyway, he, he hunted all over Europe, and then he rented this little room on Brattle Street, 
and his clients could drop in there and buy things. And that's how we got into the store business because everybody else heard about it, and they all everybody came around, lined up, and wanted to get a chance at this new merchandise. Well, I'll tell you, it was all over Europe. They were very far ahead of us in terms of understanding modernism because they were in Europe. The Bauhaus was in, in Europe. Everybody had migrated to all the countries in Scandinavia and so on. It was well understood in, in, in practice by leading designers in Europe before the war. It's not true here, just a very few here. So he brought from Europe the best stuff that it, it was developing rapidly after the war. And it was the only source. He was the only person doing it, really, except for in, in, individual ma- manufacturers. The concept of the, of the whole home furnishes industry was the client doesn't know anything. The architect brings the client by the hand and says, this is what I think you should have in this corner <laughs> and dictates. And then he goes home and collects a third of the price when the bill r- arrives. And he said he would have no part of that. So you said that Ben collected all of this stuff. How did he pick it? How would you describe the design research aesthetic? Um, innate taste, but I think it's formed by someone who's going through architectural training and visual training and an understanding of materials and forms and how things are put together, the making of things. I mean, this is all a byproduct of getting to know how to put up a building or a city or many other things. Um, so there's there's a great deal of sensitivity that an architect brings just by virtue of the background. And uh, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't go to trade fairs and look at what the trade was selling. He went to cities. He went to Switzerland, Geneva, and um, to Helsinki and everywhere. And he walked the streets and looked in the store windows. And he saw things that he liked. And he either made a note or went in. Uh, if he possibly could, or t- took a photograph, and he t- he get some documentation about what it was and who made it. And then he went back and he found the person who made it and got it directly from them. And lots of times it was small workshops and and very specialized people, like Niederer and Obach and, and traditional great places, but not you know not in the big circuits. And he tracked down everything he saw that he wanted and found, made friends with all the designers when he went to Scandinavia. And, Denmark and, and eventually to Finland, and built a working relationship with them. And he took from them just what he wanted by, by balance of needs of tables and chairs and, and other kinds of accessories and storage and bedrooms and so on to make a complete house and to have many choices for each kind of furniture. So it was just by visualizing the space as a whole and everything together. It was, nothing was an art object of itself. He put a coffee table out, and then he put something on it. He put a glass vase or an ashtray or something that would show it in use. So, again, he was coming from the point of view, this is a usable space, comfortable for human beings, good for sociability and so on. And it just was an attitude that he brought to it. The designs were obviously all very individualized, but they were all authentic and good quality and wonderful materials, many varied ones as time went on. But they just all fit together as a family in his head, and that's how that's how he made his choice. Now, Ben was a famous architect when he started design research. Why on earth would he want to start a retail store? And he worked with Walter Gropius. Walter Gropius was his partner, and he had six other partners who were all trained architects. Two of them were women. Wow. That's uh, progressive for the time. It really was. <laughs> and they were a firm of amazing idealism and ethics 
and they really wanted to make good stuff for people and to make a better life and to make better cities. And they got up to a good start because there was such a boom. Once you had the communities, you had to have schools, and they went very much into new schools and what the school experience should be like for kids. But the pressure of the clients, and it wasn't only in houses, and of course it was in schools and in offices too, was making the building true to itself on the inside rather than just a shell. The shell was just the beginning. Gropius preached this. This is what he did at the Bauhaus. It was all about making good objects of good design for all people. I mean, it was a totally ecumenical idea about design, and it had never, never been done or put in a school, certainly, before. So they worked on every possible object, you know, metal workshops, lamps, wood workshops, stone, glass, eventually uh, fabrics. All were reconsidered from the point of view of the materials and how they could be made in, in greater production but would still be affordable and make a much better environment for human habitation. So he had that support. He did not particularly have the support of his other colleagues because they were they were bent on buildings. And from what I read, they belittled him for his tangling with commercialism. Well, other architects did. His partners did not. But other architects were very haughty about it. Um, why would you bother with that small stuff? You bother with it because it matters an awful lot to a lot, <laughs> lots and lots of people, more than the look of the outside of the building. And he was driven by the need and by the interest in it. He didn't do it for commercial reasons. He, he did it for quality reasons and for the joy of it. When you get wonderful materials, hand-woven rugs and great cashmere from Bolivia and beautiful hand-blown glass and so on, I mean, there's just enormous pleasure in having it. And he wanted everybody else to be happy with it too. He had that strange external pleasure in other people's comfort. One of the other things I think is really important about the aesthetic of the DR store and that differentiates it, I think, from a lot of design stores that we see today is really the mix of items. I mean, Jane just mentioned a couple of things like Bolivian sweaters. Um, there were these Maltese wool rugs. There were $1 glasses from Mexico. Everything in the store didn't have the kind of Hans Wegner pedigree but it was all collected by Ben and put together with his eye. So there was really the kind of high-low, craft-high design, like this mixture that I think is part of the reason why DR seems especially relevant today because people either um, online or in new smaller shops are trying to do that all over again. And I know, Jane, you sometimes roll your eyes when we talk about moss because you feel like that is totally against what Ben was trying to do. Oh, really? In what way? Well, I think uh, philosophically, uh, Ben's, we're getting to the point, he was a highly sensual person, sensory. He used all his senses, you know, and smell mattered just as much as, and sound. And in the stores, he had things cooking, and he had music, and he had candles. And the experience of these things in the store was as important as what they really were, how good they were. It was like most stores, you go in and they say, don't touch, and they mean it, you know, and they arrest you if you pick up an ashtray. Uh, he said, please sit on the couch. Please touch. Lift it up. See if it fits you. He wanted you to experience things, and so people went in there and sat down and got comfortable, and they liked it. That's how many I never left. <laughs> uh, but it was hospitable. 
you felt invited and you felt taken care of and paid attention to. And nothing was behind glass. Of course, this is the anti-Tiffany view because everything's so valuable you can't touch it. And I think that Moss adopted that view. He picks things that he thinks are valuable and worthy of owning and so on. And if you're thinking like Tiffany, then you make them hard to get, hard to touch. Well, they're hard to reach. Hard, hard, <laughs> hard to reach, and you have to get a uniformed guard with a key to come and right. take it out. Well, that's about as far from what Ben was about as uh, as it was. <laughs> I love the fact that he had a bowl on the counter by the cash register filled with nickels so people could put the nickels in the meter and just stay there for as long as they wanted to. And it usually had apples. If it was fall, you could take apples or other fruit or sometimes uh, something warm to drink. Uh, that was all, why not? You know, enjoy yourself. So it was like a community center with shared aesthetics. It really was. And there are a number of stories in the book of people who started going there when they were grad students at Harvard or one of the other universities, and they just bought one plate at a time until they could get a whole set. And that, to me, shows how low a barrier to entry there was at the store and how people felt comfortable just going there and kind of going around and touching everything, even if they you know, couldn't afford what they really wanted yet. Alexandra, you wrote that in creating this store, Ben was trying to overcome staid, matchy-matchy formalism, and that today we need to overcome matchy-matchy modernism. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, I grew up in Cambridge um, in the 70s, and pretty much everyone I knew had you know, an old dining table with modernist chairs and a big paper globe lamp hanging over the dining room table. And we had that. My friends had that. Everyone had that. And so when I started working on this book, I started flipping through photos and there was the photo of that at Design Research. So I realized that what I had interpreted as a kind of ad hoc grad student aesthetic actually had a source. But I feel like now when you you see magazines like Dwell, which I like. You know, they don't have an old table. They have a new table and they have new chairs and they have a new lamp, um, often, you know, a version of that big paper globe, but by Martin Boss that costs $1,000 or something like that over the table. And it's just not the same thing. I, I don't feel like it has as much soul because you feel like everything could have just been bought at Design Within Reach in the last five minutes. And the design research aesthetic just resonates so much more for me where you have old things and new things and cheap things and expensive things all mixed together. Ralph Kaplan is somebody that we recently had on the show here at Design Matters, and he also contributed to the book. And I thought he had a really wonderful point of view about Ben's philosophy. He said that it seemed to come down to the idea that you should be able to have a nice life with nice things. And that Ben was very much interested in comfort for the body, beauty for the senses, power for the imagination. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about how he was able to do that, how Ben was able to create that power of the imagination in others. He did everything by indirection, purposeful indirection. Um, sometime after we were were married, I, I had never been a, a fan of horoscopes. But somebody gave me a thing with the write-ups of the various symbols of the horoscope. I was an Aquarius and, you know, straight-line thinking except in two directions. 
<laughs> I love that backward and forward at once. And Ben is a cancer. Oh, <laughs> but okay. Ben, as I learned, was a double cancer. Lots of sensitivity and sensuality. Uh, but holistic. He walked around every problem like a crab, and he understood all sides of it. And he wanted other people to think that way, not to go up, I've got a solution, and it's all done. That prevailed as a form of thinking in our whole architectural practice, which involves some very complex and big projects. And Ben would always frustrate the first solution and force the person to finally understand the many dimensions uh, of thinking that they were dealing with. Um, at some point, one of our Finnish salespeople, who they came regularly over from Finland, so we were mixing up nationalities and uh, ideas, and she was a great horoscope follower, and she had everybody's horoscope. And she finally said to me one day, quite late in the game, she said, I have done 2,000 horoscopes, and I have only ever found two double cancers among any people I've ever known. And one was Ben, and one was Armi Ratia. And that told me that their minds worked the same way, and that's why they had such a great collaboration or recognition of the other person's talent, I think, is what it was. Because when he first saw the Merimekko fabric, was the Brussels World's Fair of 1958, he went to the Finnish pavilion, and he saw this gorgeous outlay of handmade ceramics and blown glass and so on, and they were, there was this fabric hanging on the wall. And it's in the book, and you can see the fabric in the back of the picture. And there was a Merimekko fabric, and later on we saw a picture of a girl in a Merimekko dress. And he, he went back home and, and sent to a, uh, what was then graduate student of his who was in Finland, find me the person who made this design. Wow. In other words, it was like you're, you're, you're in an art museum and you see a painting and you say, you know, I got to know that artist. It really gets to me. They had this kind of sensory understanding through just looking of what the talents of the other person were. And going back to how did he teach her, he translated this into a way of thinking which ended up being as holistic as a single problem or a room in a house or a building in a city. He would see both. He would always see the next larger context, which is a, is a famous phrase, but I mean systematically saw it and understood it and saw the interaction between small and large and, and so on. He disallowed lazy, lazy thinking and short-circuit solutions and probed very hard. And we worked in teams, so everybody, you know, was scrambling, trying, retrying, redrawing, rethinking all the time. So with Marimiko, that was a pretty radical visual aesthetic for the time. How was he so sure that this was something that was going to be as successful, ultimately Jacqueline Kennedy was wearing Marimiko dresses during the Kennedy presidency. He saw to that. Eight yeah. dresses. No, he didn't look at it as going to be successful. He looked at it as something that was so strong and so original and of such high quality. You have to understand that this fabric is very special cotton. First of all, the design is hand-painted, so it's a work of art. Then it's hand-screened when it comes out, and it has a quality that no other printed fabric, certainly in those days, which were, you know, was very commercial and very weak, and great color. And the color was absolutely central to this and how the color was used for emphasis and just for sheer wow. Now, when these dresses came out, lots of people said, orange and pink, remember orange and pink when we saw that first dress or that blue and purple? Uh, 
the combinations were so startling that you wouldn't think any woman would want to put them on. Well, even Jacqueline Kennedy's pink and white shift, who would have thought? I mean, that's yeah. one of the most magnificent dresses I think yeah. has ever been made. Yeah, that's how it happened. So um, he didn't have a moment's hesitation. When he saw that stuff he on that wall, instantly. he knew this is a piece of interior equipment that we're missing, and no one in America is ever going to do this. Now, so much of modern... So much of the modern vernacular at that time was very beige and very minimal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I saw one of the holiday cards for the old store, and the tagline on the front of the card was, Design Research Makes Your Heart Happy with All of Its Bright Colors. Yeah. And and I was wondering, is that really? do you really feel like that's a true thing? I mean, just oh, anthropologically, yes. does bright color make people happier? Oh, it, it has a physical effect on you. How, how does that happen? Through your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, ben, ben learned one thing. I think he didn't. No one ever had to teach it to him. But uh, red affects your retina more than any other color. It, it, you know, it's the number of moving rays that are coming at you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, red is a, a color of great emphasis and and great sensuality, and you you use it with care uh, because of that. But color absolutely changes your pulse. Yeah, I've, I've often found that about music as well. Yes, I feel like course. music can also change your sort of DNA at the moment. Yes, absolutely. We, we have a great quote in the book from Tizzy Lambert, who was a student at Wellesley and then worked at DR and went on to be a design editor. And she says she used to you know, come into town from Wellesley and going to DR was like taking a vitamin pill. I read that. That was wonderful. <laughs> Alan Heller's quote in there, too, was very t- true out of a long interview with him because he did the Heller uh, dinnerware. But he said, the first time I walk into design research, I almost fainted. All my senses were being attacked at once, and I had never had that happen before. And every time I went in there, it was like a shot. So, Jane, you collaborated with Walter Gropius. You collaborated mm-hmm. and partnered with Ben Thompson. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out if that was how you got your nickname, Sir Lady Jane, because <laughs> of working with such strong men. You had to be as strong, if not stronger. Um, well, those wonderful Finns that we worked with and, I think, brought to America, were best friends with, traveled with... Um, appreciated what I think Ben started and what we ended up doing and continued to do, still do, uh, talking about Finland as the most wonderful place in America company, but it was it was really all the country is. It's the best country in the world, as Mr. Time magazine said recently. And they somehow, in some small committee with the president, decided to make us knights. You and Ben were knighted. We were knighted. All right. And so this was very nice. And we each got a medal. I said, well, that, here's a problem. He's a knight. That makes me a lady, right? I don't want to be a lady. I want to be a knight <laughs> on my own. <laughs> and I didn't think there'd been any women knights in the Order of the Lion of Finland. Oh, so before. you're the first one. <laughs> I think probably the last. So, so we sort of joked about this, and, and finally somebody said, well, you're Sir Lady Jane. And it stuck. <laughs> it stuck. <laughs> now, you were also the founding editor of ID Magazine, which at the, t- at the time was called Industrial, Industrial Design, Design Magazine. Yeah. Um, and that was also a pioneering position for a woman at that very, time. Very much a pioneer. I liked starting things. I guess there, I, I wasn't afraid of new, unseen boundaries and so on. And tragically, the magazine closed 
uh, last year after 57 years of continuous publication. I feel so proud about that. 57, 57 years. years. I mean, that's extraordinary. I have restaurants that are lasted for 40 years, but I've never had anything for 57. 57 that's years, really but it was really heartbreaking. I was at the wake. I was uh, there too. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed seeing <laughs> you. <laughs> um, how did that feel? It must have, did it feel bittersweet? Did you feel like it's just I felt, something that... Um, I felt absolutely delighted to know that so many people kept reading the magazine and how much they derived from it or how much they relied on it. That, that and inspired by and influenced yeah. by and motivated by. I mean, I was there. You know, who's that? I mean, nobody had any idea why I was there. Ralph was there. I think everybody knew she, why you were there, She was Jane. there. She I think was there. everybody knew why you were there. All of the, all of the figures were there. I it was really you. Very, I was just too intimidated to say yeah, anything. It was really, it was really, really very cute. I, uh, no, I was, I, was, uh, I was really happy. I'm sorry that it ended that way, but it sounded like there were a lot of grave diggers around, you know, find another way to put another magazine together. Well, what are your thoughts on the future of publishing? Do you think that magazines are nearing their end? Do you still think that there's an opportunity to do something remarkable on paper? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I do. I think we have to have paper. Everything else is so illusory and so hard to transfer and so hard to study and remember and keep. I mean, this is why I did a book at this time. It had to be a different kind of book, I think, if the subject is design, which it certainly is what the story was in, in multiple levels and in different formats. In other words, I think I, very much, I was very much trained as a magazine editor because we made all of our stories. Deborah's uh, um, husband was working at Life magazine, which was the great visual experience of, you know, of the post-war years. They had the best photographers and the best visual layouts uh, anywhere. And we just wanted to make ID magazine as exciting as that without, of course, the resources of the material that they had, um, to tell a story with strongly with pictures and with uh, ways of using type that were not just like the wooden textbook that you buy still, you know, in the bookstore. I mean, there's a title and there's text, and there's a title and there's text, with no sense of imagery at all. So I, I approached this book, and I think we we worked it out very much on the basis of this is... This is a different way of booking, uh, of using type, of using the quotes, you know, as leads, so that if you're just flipping the book, you will still come to the end and you will know a lot. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Alexandra, was that you seem to love a lot of things retro, and mm. when it, some of your <laughs> other writing includes a marvelous essay on the republication of Maud Lovelace's 1940s Betsy Tacey books. <laughs> And also a survey of wooden toys. So what about the work and the design from that era do you find so intriguing? I guess I think the design from that era is just in my DNA. And so I'm sort of, it makes me seem nostalgic and retro, but it's like I can't help it. Um, My maternal grandparents were both trained as designers at Pratt. And my mother's a graphic designer. And these are all the things that I grew up with. And they're very natural to me. And so the more, you know, I read in design history, the more I see things that were in our house that were talked about. And I just, I want to know more. So I think of it, for me, it's not so much nostalgic as kind of tracing my own history. And particularly the, the history of the taste of my family. I mean, this is something I've thought about trying to write about at some later point. 
Um, I have to say, in my own defense, I do also write about a lot of contemporary architecture, so I'm not totally living in the past. No, I know that. (laughs) I I was thinking about the common denominators between some of the writing that Mm. you've done aside from design, the work on design research, and I thought everything that you write about has soul. And Mm. I thought that that was a really interesting way to approach what you choose to write about. Um, In the afterword of the book, uh, Paul Goldberger wrote, uh, the most important development in American design in the last generation is not any single object that has been designed, but the democratization of design itself. And Jane and Alexandra, I want to thank you for all you've done in pioneering this movement, in creating this movement, and creating such a joyful and meaningful book conveying your journey in doing this. Thank you for being on Design Matters today. Thank you. This is very, very nice. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Design Matters. To find out more about Jane Thompson and Alexandra Lang, please visit designobserver.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.